The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online. My name is Eve Patton and I'm really pleased to join you all today for a special hour-long conversation about St Bridget's Day and the figure of Bridget. Uh, today is, of course, the 1st of February. Uh, it is the feast day of St Bridget. Many of us will have grown up knowing about her as one of Ireland's patron saints uh, and uh, a figure associated with many traditions, the woven reed crosses, uh, the red cloths, hung out on the line. Um, And her day, of course, also marks the beginning of spring. And she's associated with healing and renewal, uh, terms that are very close to our hearts at the moment. And I think that you'll have seen over the weekend already many discussions, uh, artworks, uh, pieces of music put out to mark Bridget's Day this year in in 2021, uh, including the wonderful three poems produced and set to film and music by the Museum of Literature of Ireland. I hope we've got a link for those for you in the chat. So in uh, 2021, Bridget is a figure who seems more relevant than ever to us. And we wanted to have a conversation about her here in the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, What do we know about her? Who was she? Why does she have so many different variants of her name? How does she bridge Christian and non-Christian traditions? And why is she associated with renewal and healing? How can we use Bridget in contemporary life and culture as a source of inspiration? Uh, I'm going to be talking to four guests and I'll introduce them to you properly uh, as we go along. Rita Duffy, uh, Catherine Sims, Mary Condren and Nandini Gupta. Um, But before we turn to them, I'll just remind you that uh, we are streaming on Facebook and also on our US media partner, Irish Central. And as always, uh, you can follow us on Twitter um, at TLR Hub, and our hashtag is Hub Matters, hashtag Hub Matters. Uh, But let's get started and think about Bridget. And I'm going to talk first to Rita Duffy. Rita Duffy, I think many of you will know, is one of Ireland's most celebrated visual artists. She is an artist in residence in the Trinity Long Room Hub. We've been delighted to have her over the past year uh, and she's worked with us on numerous things. Uh, Current BBC Northern Ireland documentary has brilliantly charted Rita's life and work and the political context and content of her dynamic idiosyncratic paintings and installations. She has addressed Uh, the Northern Ireland Troubles, she has addressed Brexit, and of course at the moment she has addressed in a very imaginative way uh, the grip of the coronavirus on all of our lives. Uh, If you were lucky enough to have walked through Trinity before the lockdown, I hope you'll have seen her fantastic, uh, huge uh, picture of the raft based on uh, Jericho's raft of the Medusa and signaling the disorientation of current political life under Brexit and many other things. Rita, uh, you're very welcome. And I know that you have been thinking about Bridget quite a bit over the past few weeks, uh, partly in relation, I think, to the work that you've been doing to try to represent the strictures of our life uh, under the the pandemic. Can you tell me what, what Bridget has meant to you or what what she means to you in, in your present work. Well, thanks very much, Eve. It's very nice to be here on this special day. Um, I suppose Bridget has been a feature in my life for quite some time. Uh, my mother is Bridget, born in Kilbride in County Offaly, or very close to one of the Bridgetine um, abbeys. Um, but I find her to be a really interesting uh, figure in Irish culture. Um, uh, obviously, she was. We were taught about her at school. She was the woman that plucked her eye out. Um, she was virtuous. She was brave, and she was very smart. Um, I mean that that image of the cloak. 
I think is particularly resonant for me. Um, and back a long time ago, I made a, a little painting called Mantle. And I'm going, to show, I'm going to ask Francesca to put up some slides while I'm speaking, because I think it's probably, uh, probably more interesting than um, just me speaking by myself. Um, the mantle, this is, a, the, this is like a kind of a sheltering wigwam, a tribal hut. There's a certain, um, there's, a, there's a visual metaphor in there that I think is very relevant today and, and might serve us very well in terms of um, uh, a symbol or an image for all of the island cooperating and sheltering each other. Um, the, that, that garment extended, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, in, in mythology, she asked for a small piece of land and, and the garment grew. So it was something of a land grab by a smart woman. Um, and the next image is a, uh, the next image, Francesca, is a, uh, an image of the divine female. Uh, this was a little handbag that I had, um, a vintage handbag from the 1950s, sort of Marla Monroe's briefcase of sorts. But when it opened, it certainly wasn't a briefcase. Um, it had that Sheila Nagig uh, birthing, um, womb-like uh, feminist image. Um, and in Belfast at the time, some, some of the only kind of private territory that women had was their handbag. So even though I'm looking at imagery that to me has a very strong sense of Bridget and the female, I'm also very interested in, in how it fits today, how it fits into kind of explaining or representing or reflecting women's lives today. Um, obviously, Bridget was the healer, the, the repairer, and I think it's probably good to put the next slide up now, um, Francesca, thanks. Um, this is stitch ripping, and it was from a series of drawings that I made when I was doing the Shirt Factory project up in Derry. Derry being the wall city in the Northwest um, that was you know, the beginnings of the plantations of Ulster, um, the city that was built on women's work. So there's this image of a woman with needle and thread and again, this red cloth um, being repaired, being stitched. It's almost like she's repairing herself. Um, there's, a, there's a sense of that wonderful poem as well by Yeats of Cúhal and Comforted, where after battle, after damage, after the, the blood sacrifice of war and turmoil, we have to come together and go down and wash, sew the shrouds and wash the blood stains off the bodies. Um, and that takes me on to the, the souvenir shop, uh, which is the next slide. Um, and it's uh, a figure of Bridget as the little healer. And this is one of the research images that I made for uh, the souvenir shop. And it was like, when Europe in the First World War was tearing itself apart. Um, and as the sons of Ulster were marching towards the Somme, this little figure appears as a, as a um, almost a figure of, of sanity amidst um, a bloodlust that swept around the world. Um, in the next image, Nurse Five and Six, these may as well be little Bridget's. The red hands, the the, the, the veils, that white mantle, they look like kind of um, the Dominican nuns that taught me. Um, and there's a strange sort of power in, in those hands. Um, of course, nursing was one of the few things that, that women were allowed to do outside the home as a chosen career. And it was very much about um, the female as being nurturing and, um, and probably wise enough to see that um, it's women and children that suffer the major effects of war and civil disturbance. Um, so those were some of the imagery that I just pulled out at random from my archive. And then to get straight into uh, COVID arriving, we'll go to the next slide. Um, don't be afraid, toilet roll. Uh, I thought it was appropriate and interesting to kind of approach this, as I do most things that frighten me, with a little bit of humour. Um, at this time, I was actually contemplating, would you believe, a project on milk cartons called the milk of human kindness and I even managed to persuade the milk marketing board in the north that it was a good idea and they were willing to kind of 
um, work with me. So that, this might be something we could, we could go back to uh, for next year. And maybe Trinity would have its very own Milk of Human Kindness project happening. Um, I did, I wanted to kind of reach out when there's that sense of fear and um, just the, the, the unknown and, and, and being locked down, everybody told to go home and wait. Um, there was a, a real sense of trembling. Um, and I wanted, I kind of figured art was strong enough to save us. So I, I, I went back to that idea of sewing names into uh, my son's school uniforms. And I thought if I could sew little messages into students' clothing at Trinity uh, that related to um, the, the pandemic, it, it might be like little prayers that you would kind of put your hand into your pocket and realize that um, there was something reassuring there. Um, that led directly to a project that we had hoped to do, but obviously COVID staying the distance meant that we had to kind of think, it, think our way around it. Um, but the cure at Trinity was a very specific kind of Brigidine um, fusion of that name tag idea and the day that was in it. And the idea was that we would create a huge kind of wishing tree on the front railings of Trinity, um, covering them in red cloth so that uh, as, as last night with my red cloth out, um, Bridget's brat would gather the, the dew and the people of Dublin would be offered little pieces of cloth to take home with them uh, to use in the coming year as um, a healing uh, garment or healing cloth to be held in the kitchen. And obviously that didn't seem like a sensible idea um, because there's a pandemic going on. So we behaved ourselves and uh, it remains an image that might, might happen another, another year. Um, what I did do was a series of drawings uh, called The Anatomy of Hope. And I, during the summer, in, during the kind of middle of the first lockdown, I started making these uh, anatomical drawings of um, organs within the body because it, all of a sudden it felt like um, it was very a vulnerable experience to contemplate your, your physical mortality and watch as the numbers unfortunately rose by the night on the television. Um, the spring came, uh, that sense of the, 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 the restorative um, power of nature was so incredibly poignant and, and, and important to me. I realized that what I needed to do and what I wanted to do was to make an animation. So um, working with three wonderful uh, young animators. Um, Maeve Gilhini was fabulous pulling, pulling the little team together. We created um, a looped animation that has six sequences and you'll be able to see this if you go to the website. And it's really about um, fear and um, COVID arrives. There's a, there's a, a sense of kind of previous pandemics, uh, a trembling, a, a gnashing of teeth, and it goes through images of Bridget come through very clearly. The burning arrow uh, turns into a vaccine, but it's very much about and in praise of nature and in praise and, um, and urgency that we start uh, cooperating with nature and behaving in a, a little more respectfully on this planet so that we're not faced with multiple pandemics in the future and that we might actually have learned something from this experience and go through this portal into the next world that we are facing into a little smarter, a little wiser, a little less greedy and a little more respectful. Um, and that's my contribution. Rita, it's, it's just wonderful to see the images and I just want to reassure everyone we will be showcasing uh, the Anatomy of Hope sequence in the near future because it's a wonderful piece. Uh, but it was very disappointing that we couldn't go ahead with your planned installation for the cure at Trinity. And I think people watching will have been really struck by the illustrated version with the red cloths hung round the railings of the front of college. So we do hope we can revisit that in the future. But I want to just ask you because I think people will also have been struck by the way in which 
your use of Bridget both has to show her as a sanitizing figure. She brings healing, she brings health, but you've also had to, in a way, reverse the way she has been sanitized. And that image of the handbag is a very sexual image. It's quite in your face. Uh, I wonder how you see her on that divide between being uh, the, the, the clean saintly figure and the, the real woman. Well, I think that sanitizing of Bridget has come basically because particularly um, from the North, uh, that sense of patriarchal, what women should do and can do and are only allowed to do. Um, I mean, after the, the report on the mother and baby's home, I, I had this urge to go and draw a smile on every Virgin Mary in every grotto in Ireland, because this image of mother I'm sorry, Rita. I'm going to stop. I, I, I think having some technical difficulties with your audio. We, we'll, uh, Francesca. We'll we'll come back. I hope we get uh, to come back to Rita when we've a bit of time for conversation at the end. But I know that uh, Rita, in addition to looking at the visual uh, representations of Bridget, also has read very deeply across the scholarly material that relates to her as a figure. And I want to turn now to one of our um, most esteemed scholars in this field, um, Professor Catherine Sims. Uh, Catherine, welcome back to uh, Trinity. Uh, many of you will know Professor Catherine Sims uh, as a former senior lecturer in medieval history at Trinity until her retirement in 2010. And she is of course widely published on the field, uh, in the field of, of uh, medieval Gaelic history. She's the author of From Kings to Warlords from 1987 and Medieval Gaelic Sources from 2009 and many other uh, works on this era. Uh, she's going to talk today and to read a talk that she gave previously on the mythical figure of Brig. And this is adapted from a paper that Professor Sims gave to the Women's Law Society. Um, and a revised version of it is going to be published in a collection of essays uh, that's forthcoming and edited by our own Sparky Booker. So we'll, we'll keep you posted on that. Um, but Professor Sims, Catherine, let me welcome you back to Trinity and uh, ask you to tell us a little bit more about the Bridget figure. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I want to talk about fragments of evidence, mostly from the law tracts and sagas, which point to the traditional attributes of the goddess Brig or Bridget quite independently from what we can glean from the life of St. Bridget of Kildare. St. Bridget herself, of course, is the clearest example we have of the cult of a Christian saint becoming merged with that of a pre-Christian Celtic goddess, also worshipped in Gaul under the guise of the Gaulish Minerva and arguably linked to the Romano-British shrine of Sul at Bath or Aqua Sulis in England. Uh, we have um, circumstantial evidence of the pagan background to uh, Bridget uh, of Kildare uh, in the sacred oak and the perpetual fire tended by 19 virgins, um, as recorded by Gerald of Wales in the 12th century. But we also have explicit statement of Bishop Cormac McQuillanon of Cashel in his early 10th century glossary about a pagan goddess with the same name, Bridget, that is the poetess, daughter of the Dagda, the good god. This is Bridget the female seer or woman of insight, the goddess whom the poets used to worship for her cult was very great and very splendid. It is for this reason that they call her the goddess of poets and her sisters were called Bridget the woman of leechcraft or medicine and Bridget, the woman of Smithcraft, that is goddesses, that is three daughters of the Dagda, the good god, are they. Kim McCone in his book, Pagan Pasts and Christian Present, has argued that the names Brig and Brigid are prone to interchangeability in early Irish sources and adds the Christians and Bridget's cult or attributes may then be partly based on those of the mythical female hospitaller 
whose name is preserved in the legal context as Brig the Brugu. A Brugu or hospitaller in early Irish society is defined by his, or in this case her, possession of great herds of cattle and other, other livestock. Um, as the richest non-noble landowner in the local kingdom or Tours, um, the hospitaller was bound by custom to offer hospitality to travelers, both visiting dignitaries and wandering scholars, unemployed soldiers or beggars. Uh, another mythical Brig mentioned in the law tracts is Brig Amboy, Brig the cowless or the propertyless, the female expert of the men of Ireland in wisdom and prudence, as she's called in a version of the pseudo-historical prologue to the great Brehon Law compilation, uh, the Shanachus Mar. Um, this cites as one of its sources, the judgments of Brig the propertyless from which she derived a further nickname, Brig Brethach, Brig of the Judgments. Her epithet of cowless or propertyless served to distinguish her from Brig the Hospitaller, who was associated with riches, livestock and hospitality, and to make her instead the patron of the wandering scholars or the warrior class. This Brig of the Judgments figures as a character in the Ulster Saga cycle, concerning Cúhullan and the famous cattle raid of Cooley, among other texts. She is there variously described as the wife or daughter of an equally mythical prehistoric judge, Shanaka Makalala, as the wife of the Ulster Hospitaller, Lee Brigu, or of the warrior, Keltker MacUthiker. These three parallel identities confirm both her mythical character and the threefold functions of the underlying goddess by associating her with learning, hospitality, and warfare. It is possible to argue that the cult of her Christian reflex and Bridget of Kildare also bore traces of a similar threefold function in that the saint was associated with the legendary poet, Luger, to whom her brothers originally betrothed her also with habits of lavish hospitality and gift giving, and rites to ensure fertility are performed, were performed into modern times in St. Bridget's Day, and also with warfare, in that she was credited with spreading a protecting cloak over the men of Leinster when they went into battle. Professor Liam Branagh, in his companion to the Corpus Iuris Bernicke, reports that he searched in vain for an actual text called the judgments of Brig the Propertyless, considers it may never have existed formally, but instead refers generally to a series of judgments attributed to this mythical personage. The judgments themselves are concerned with adapting the general provisions of customary law to the particular needs of women. The fact that these deviations from the general rules are put into the mouths of a prestigious mythical female figure is meant to underline the view that these are not diminutions of women's rights as opposed to men, but adaptations to their circumstances. St. Adavnon of Iona in his Law of the Innocents in 697 AD had championed the cause of oppressed women and slaves. The judgments of Brie concern instead freeborn women from propertied families, the female counterparts of the landowning Fene or free citizens who are the main focus of the Brehon laws. It's typical of this concern with women of property that the original appeal to the judgments of Brig comes in the law tract Dintectigad concerning the right way to claim possession of inheritance, landed inheritance. This tells us in the little anecdote that the male judge, Shanaka Makalela, pronounced that women should claim inheritance by the same process as men and immediately his face broke out into disfiguring blotches, a divine punishment for delivering a false judgment. Not until his wife or daughter, Brig Bresach, Brig of the Judgments, delivered a corrective judgment that women should have a separate process of their own, did his blisters go away, proclaiming the truth 
of her alternative decision. This may indicate that traditionally there wasn't a separate right, but that one had been recently developed to correct what was seen as an error or an injustice. The injustice was that women were only allowed to claim a life interest in their family land, not to pass it on to their descendants. So since the claim was for a lesser right of inheritance, it was seen as fairer that they should have a shorter and simpler ritual uh, to undergo in asserting their claim. When the Christian jurists of the late seventh or eighth century wanted to introduce a correction or update to the inherited corpus of Irish customary law, they commonly described the new improvement as an age-old precedent established by the pronouncement of mythical judges, judges like Murren of the Magic Collar or Seneca MacAlela from the Ulster Sagas. They even at times composed archaic verse about the improved ruling to make its immemorial status more convincing. So citing the judgment of Seneca MacAlela's wife in support of the revised process for claiming women's inheritance was a natural development. Once the principle was established that women's special circumstances might require special legal remedies, a host of other exceptions in favor of women's needs were added in another major law tract, the Ketherschlicht Askevala, the four modes of distraint, always citing the immemorial wisdom of Brig of the Judgments. An obvious instance was the king's right to fine a landowner who failed to answer a summons to war after three days' notice. A female heiress wasn't expected to go to war in person, so she might need to compel a kinsman to take her place. Her claim was to be executed after a mere two days, giving her time to get her substitute ready before the king's notice of three days was up. This short delay of two days for the execution of a claim was then extended to a host of other claims seen as the particular needs of women, payment for a woman's handiwork, spinning, weaving, embroidering, claims for the return of equipment needed for this work, claims for the return of a queen's lapdog or a black and white cat, both seen as protective animals to keep by the bedside of a woman in childbirth because they could see and frighten away evil spirits or vampires that hovered round at such times. The lawyers went so far as to assert that Brig the propertyless was the first person in Ireland to train a lapdog. All such tangential references to Brig in the legal corpus can be linked to her role in the two major tracts already mentioned concerning inheritance and distraint tending to confirm Liam Brannock's conclusion that there never was a formal separate tract called the Judgment of Brig. It also implies that both Shankar Macalela and Brig the Propertyless or Cowless didn't have a long-standing tradition as prehistoric judges in pagan times, but were cited as ancient authorities who lived before the coming of Christianity to Ireland by jurists familiar with the tales of the Ulster cycle. However, the mythical Brig, the female hospitaller, Brig the cowless, as they figure in the Ulster sagas, seem clearly to relate to the tripartite goddess Bridget, whose name meant the exalted one, daughter of the Dagda, or good god, whose other name was Ohu Olatha, the All-Father. And there you have it. Absolutely fascinating, Catherine. I know uh, people listening, some of, uh, some of them will have some knowledge of uh, these sources, but you've opened up a much more multiple um, and conflicted version of uh, the Brieg figure, obviously, for us. How is it that so many attributes of this version of Bridget, uh, who is involved in the rule of law, who's involved in the holding of property, who's a figure of independence and strength, and even you might say a kind of early capitalism. How is it that we've lost that sense of Bridget in what is uh, uh, our modern, our contemporary accommodation of her? Well, I think um, that was uh, rather an artificial construction of the jurists and wasn't part of the tradition. They drew on Brig in order to uh, give um, authority to their own uh, arrangements. 
the authority then came from the background goddess who was clearly a goddess of arts and crafts, um, mm. uh, of intelligence and, and, and um, a talent. Um, she, they regarded martial arts as one of the arts, which explains how she is also a goddess of war. Um, and uh, healing was a very important one. And that, of course, was a craft or art as well. Uh, so that she is indeed involved in, in, in healing and uh, protection in wartime and uh, uh, intelligence and art. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading this paper when it's published. And what you've addressed, I think, speaks to an interest that uh, some of our panellists have already expressed in the way in which Bridget, in a, a contemporary uh, modern guise, can be seen as a feminist figure or can be seen as a resource for combating uh, patriarchy, whether it's patriarchy through the church or other institutions. Um, and the way in which we read her in uh, modern times is something I want to move on to now with our next two speakers. Um, I'm going to go next to uh, Mary Condren. Dr. Mary Condren, let me introduce her for you. She's a visiting research fellow at the Center for Gender and Women's Studies in Trinity College. Uh, and she is the director of Woman Spirit Ireland. Mary has organized and resourced the festivals of Brigitte, which have been held across Ireland and in fact, North America as well uh, for 30 years. She is the author of The Serpent and the Goddess, Women, Religion and Power in Celtic Ireland. And it's in this book that Mary discusses the question of Bridget and what her importance is for us today. And uh, Mary, I know that you're still writing on Bridget with a new book to come out. And there are numerous articles that you've written on this subject as well. I hope we'll be able to, to post some of them for people in the chat. But let me welcome you to the conversation, Mary, um, and ask you, uh, first of all, how is it that you turned to this figure and, and, and what has she meant for you as a scholar, first of all? Um. We started, I, I, I wrote my first essay on Bridget in 1980 as a postgraduate post student in Boston and quickly realized that the manuscript traditions were so exhaustive that I could have spent 10 years doing a PhD and only have addressed one manuscript. Um, and so I switched um, tack um, and did something else in my, in my doctorate studies. But when I came home to Ireland, um, we were in the middle of, of a civil war. And in that sense, I'm very much on the same path as Ruga because that has that has inspired and um, um, pushed my writing and my thinking in that direction. I came home in 1986. I was at that stage almost a fully qualified theologian with a doctorate in the area, although my field is religion, gender, and culture. It's not um, it's not Celtic studies, um, and. The question was, you know, there were many women who were all dressed up and nowhere to go because none of the churches at that point accepted women into their official or officiating roles, let alone allow them to promulgate theology. And so we set up Women's Spirit Ireland in order to um, begin to explore what it might mean to hear a woman, to bring a woman's voice, to hear each other into speech. That is the famous um, saying by Nell Morton. And um, how do we hear each other into speech? <clears throat> and the figure of Bridget then became the key figure um, as a way of exploring our indigenous heritage in Ireland, rather than the religion, the religions of empire, which, um, you know, we, we were also encountering. And, you know, we felt we could have spent our lives fighting them, but it was much more important to hear each other into speech and to recuperate the indigenous traditions that were already there. And in your writing, sorry, I, I, I'm interested in this because you use the term in, in one of your articles about legitimacy, that the, the Bridget figure is a way of giving legitimacy to a female voice, a female presence, which has been, uh, I suppose, uh, removed of authority in the past. Um, are you consciously politicizing Bridget or do you think that the, the, the political content is already there in the sources, the various identities? Uh, that Catherine Sim was talking about. Well, the funny thing is that I didn't write my doctoral thesis on, on Bridget, but I did write it on sacrifice and political legitimation, the construction of a gendered social order. Um, and I do have some articles on my academia page on that issue as well. Um, I was not looking at, at, at it as, you know, in, in recuperating the 
the traditions of Bridget, I was not interested in the political end so much as um, recuperating the imagery, the symbols. Um, Catherine Sims has done a brilliant job looking at the, the various figures of Bridget in the in the law tracks. But I, for the first time in my life, I encountered the, the living traditions. And in our festivals, we encountered things like the material artifacts, Bridget's cloak, Bridget's cross, um, and the Chris, particularly the Chris, which is the belt. And, and I've been very fortunate in the sense that I've been in touch with them because I spent seven years in the United States. I was very much in touch with the Institute of Archaeomythology and the work of what we call goddess scholars. And um, they have been extremely helpful in, in exploring the, the parallels, the, the international parallels between the traditions associated now with Bridget and those of the, um, the old European female figures of divinity. So I was not looking for it as a political thing. I was much more interested in, in empowering women to begin to explore the indigenous traditions and to find a place to stand. That's the, that's the main issue, finding a place to stand. And can you tell us a bit more about these symbols? Because obviously uh, Rita has spoken a bit about the cloak, so closely identified with, with Bridget. Um, but the Chris is also of great interest and I know that uh, this is something that you, you've you've worked on a little bit. You know, what, what, why are these symbols, why are these attributes of Bridget so important for our imagining of her and, and what her function is? Well, to begin with, the um, again in my in my overall work, I switch between focusing on sacrifice and violence and war, which is my main teaching, and also my other work, which is on um, female divinity, and the cloak. Um, whereas the altar of sacrifice is primarily a legitimating instrument. Um, the cloak is the cloak of mercy. And in all of the, in all of the biblical and other religions, the, the prophets cried out and Jesus was among them who said in no uncertain terms, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And um, in The Serpent and the Goddess, I wrote about Bridget going for ordination or else she may have been ordained because the, Bridget, the bishop was drunk or he wasn't quite sure what he was doing. But when I went back to the sources, I discovered that when Bridget went to take the veil, she took the Beatitude Mercy. And that led to another whole um, exposition or exploration um, in the sense that the cloak is put out and it absorbs the dew of mercy. And again, I found that all over the world, um, female figures of divinity like Kuan Yin, like Sarasvati and like Lema and like many others, the dew of, the dew of mercy is the primary healing fluid. It is the primary sacred fluid as opposed to the blood sacrificial um, fluids that are so current in our contemporary warring kind of religions of empire. So the cloak has become extremely important and the, all of the imagery of the cloak around the world shows the, um, there isn't so much on Bridget yet, but we can work on that. Um, we show the Virgin Mary as, uh, you know, embracing every color and creed and, you know, size and shape as if to say, you're all welcome here. We are not the sacrificial um, people. We are the ones who bring in the poor, the homosexuals, the disabled. Um, you're all welcome because our job is not to be splitting between the sacred and the profane, between women and men, between heaven and hell, between sinners and holy. Our job is to contain and to welcome everybody under the cloak. The Chris is a different um, kind of an image because I, and I only learned about that when I was teaching in Canada one day and I was talking about the Chris because I really didn't know an awful lot about it. Um, but I was talking about the Chris, which is a belt and a woman said, oh my goodness. She said, I could never practice as a midwife in, in, in Africa unless I had my belt. And I thought, gosh, this is really interesting. So then I began to explore the, what, what the Chris could mean and um, discovered that there it was indeed um, an artifact used in midwifery. It was used to help women to give, to, to give birth. It was, helped to, it was used to abort a dead fetus. It was helping, um, there are many different uses and the saints also, they all, all had their girdles. And in fact, the, one of the most precious objects in the National Museum is a thing called the Moylock Shrine. And if you look at the Moylock Shrine, you see beautiful imagery of jewels and gold and silver and whatever, but they only house the artifact. The real, the real relic is actually the belt, a small little leather belt inside the Moylock Shrine. 
Um, and so, and also the belt then in later years became um, an, ob an object on which people swore. You could swear an oath by holding the belt. And so it had extraordinary significance. And in my work, I like to think about it as, um, you know, a form of alignment that wearing the belt and when we use it in our festivals, this is what I, I, I try to say to people, we are trying to be in alignment with our own bodies. We're not repudiating our bodies as we've been taught to do under patriarchal religion. We're aligning our bodies. We are aligning ourselves with the values and the hopes and the needs of our communities. And we are also aligning ourselves with the cosmos because even Plato, um, and you can, you can find this if you rummage around sometimes in the Greek scholars, the trace hauntings of another world. And Plato talked about the belt of heaven. And so, and there are other scholars who, who talk about it because in the Irish tradition, we have three crosses, you know, attached to the Chris, but in the, Indo or the old European tradition, there were three buttons, there were three images, there were all sorts of images. And the, the hypothesis is, or the speculation is that they may have been trying to be in, align in alignment with Orion. That, that, that was the significance of it. So, but I still have a huge amount of work to do on these kind of things. And I'm hoping this, um, this seminar will encourage others to work along with us. Thank you, Mary. It, it's fascinating. It, it really is. And you've touched on um, the international parallels and, and parallel figures uh, to, to Bridget uh, across the world. And I think that that gives me a chance to move on uh, to our final speaker, who's going to talk a little bit about Sarasvati and, and some of the other figures uh, that you've mentioned. Uh, and I'm really pleased to welcome uh, Nandini uh, Gupta to the hub, back to the hub, because she's uh, one of our uh, Irish Research Council uh, scholars, doctoral scholars in the Trinity Long Room Hub. Um, and she's based uh, in School of Ecumen Ecumenics at Trinity. Nandini is also an Andrew Green scholar in conflict resolution. And this is a scholarship which is jointly funded with the Conflict Resolution Unit of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, so she comes to us uh, well supported by these various institutions and her research is looking at the role of women uh, in relation to concepts of identity uh, that emerge during uh, uh, and post-conflict reconstruction. Um, uh, Nandini already holds an MPhil in gender studies and I'm pleased to say her background in fact as an undergraduate is in English. Uh, so she's used to reading texts, but Nandini, how do you read the text of Bridget? And what can you tell us about the work you're doing, I suppose, in relation to, uh, to conflict and, and reconstruction after conflict and how figures such as Bridget might fit in, but also about these international parallels that are so interesting of, of deities and figures in other cultures who seem to have a similar function. Thanks, Eve. Thanks very much. Um, although my current research is basically looking at feminist peace building, but I come from a land which is known to be a land of goddess and goddesses. So I'm really, I've always been quite interested uh, in uh, looking at uh, the terminology and the understanding of, um, of female deities uh, all across the world. And Mary's work has kind of really inspired me to go in depth. And uh, I was really struck uh, by by the by the by the image and the iconography of uh, Bridget, because I could find such striking um, cross references with Saraswati, who is known to be a goddess of learning in India. But if you go uh, into in, into the context of Saraswati, you actually see that her her image occurs uh, between 1300 and 2000 BC in uh, Northwest India, where she was actually um, referred to as the chief patron of river um, and uh, healing. And she was called as the chief patron river who kind of heals the one who come and embraces her. And it was it's also very striking that over the time, her her image of as a healer and somebody who's associated with the pagan values of river and environment is kind of taken over by the value of learning. And again, that kind of um, feminist analysis of her understanding kind of makes me question that learning of what. And if you go and kind of situate it in in what's happening in India right now with the Hindu fundamentalist party being in power, you would actually see that the, the, the discourse of learning is very much patriarchal oriented. 
um, the learning of, for example, what, for example, Bridget. Bridget is known to be the greatest healer, um, you know, and Bridget, like, for example, even Catherine, Professor Catherine Sims talked about that Bridget and three daughters. You actually also see Saraswati uh, with Lakshmi and Parvati, the Tridevi that we had, uh, you so-called in the Dravidian area, which kind of taken over with the Aryan values, uh, which very much harped on the patriarchal values uh, of, of her understanding and kind of wiped away what Mary said, the understanding of mercy and compassion that these, uh, these goddesses had. So uh, there's a very strong uh, in, in, in terms of, you know, Saraswati, both Saraswati and Bridget as a healer. And if you kind, kind of see, it's also very astonishing that, you know, if you, if you situate Bridget in the, in the Christian era, she's, she becomes a foster mother, you know, uh, who helped Mary um, in the birthing of the Jesus. Whereas if you go and if you see her in, you know, if, if through, through the pagan lens, she, you will see her as, as, as a figure that of course Mary talks about which, which lends mercy to all. You know, she's not only the mother of Jesus or foster mother of Jesus, but she's the mother to everybody. And so is Saraswati. And you, I can bring in the parallels of Mago, you know, in South Korea or major kami in Japanese, in, in, in Japanese tradition. Uh, these were the mo mother goddesses uh, uh, the mother who caters to everybody's need and not to the specific needs that's, you know, that's happening right now. So it's really interesting to br bring these international comparisons and to see that, uh, and there's a lot of work being done as well in the matriarchal field of work where you go, where, you know, where, um, where feminist scholars are looking at the, how this idea of motherhood uh, has been taken over by patriarchy to suit their dominant understanding of motherhood, who is very much laden with power and subservience and um, marginalization of, of, of other communities. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Nandini? I mean, how vulnerable are such deities, uh, not only in India, but in the other cultures that you've talked about, to being appropriated for different uses, but being uh, appropriated by different political uh, incentives. Um, you know, it, it, is this a kind of battle for possession that goes on, um, not perhaps so much in Ireland, but elsewhere for the uh, the value that these figures can offer? Yeah, definitely. Uh, for example, if you see the example of Major Kami in uh, Japanese culture, um, in, in, in the recent tradition, you actually uh, don't see that. Uh, and it's kind of taken uh, like because it's it's the Japan Buddhism took over after that, um, and they, they, of course there are no major deities of women women as kind of you don't see women predominantly in Buddhism, so you don't see her in Japanese tradition. Only people who are working and trying to recuperate her understanding, like I explained, uh, you will see that. So appropriation is, is a very big element. And like, I would like to go back to, you know, scholars, for example, feminist scholars like Louis Irigere and uh, one of her seminal texts, The Divine Women. She talks a lot about how the female deities are being appropriated by how it has, you know, they have appropriated even, for example, Mago in South Korea as well. It, she was such a, um, su um, such a, um, how to say, um, a goddess of fertility again. Um, she was, you know, associated with fertility. And um, now only people who are working on Mago would be able to tell about that. And there's not too much, um, she's not being put in the center, you know, which she was, so is Saraswati. Now you would, for example, in India, you would uh, see Radha and Krishna, where we always had this idea of Shakti and Shiva coming together to produce a life where that binary has been taken over by the masculine um, figure and the, the feminine values goes down with. Uh, so I think the appropriation um, has been a kind of uh, a battlefield for, for, for the patriarchy where they have kind of appropriated uh, the, the feminine values to kind of um, suit their purpose of, uh, you know, of uh, how to say, of of creating a patriarchal utopia that Mary would say Mary has used in the, that word in her work. And you, you picked it up perfectly there, I think, Nandini. But last of all, I just want to ask probably a, a quick question about what 
what you've seen that, that picks up on some of the visual and the symbolic uh, material that we associate with the Bridget figure. And Mary talked about Chris and we've talked about uh, the, the cloak as well. Are there distinctive symbols that, that seem to occur in the cultures that you've looked at that have that kind of richness of meaning um, that, that we've been talking about with Bridget? Is there anything similar to the cloak, for example? Uh, yeah, uh, for example, uh, Saraswati, Saraswati, you will see Saraswati uh, always on the lotus. Uh, you would see that she has a lotus and she's sitting on the lotus and lotus kind of um, kind of is an example of of somebody who's going to take you uh, from ignorance to light. Uh, then, for example, the three, th 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 the three Devi that I told, um, uh, you know, you will also see Lakshmi and Parvati. And, you know, for example, Durga is again as a strong example where she also has, um, you know, weapons in her hand as well to kind of uh, defend the vulnerable of the society. Uh, so, um, and it's it's really important, like, you know, to, and for example, you have the Bridget's cloak and here you have Saraswati's lotus or, you know, Durga axe. And um, again, going back and how these, all these symbols kind of relate to the idea of healing and, uh, and compassion and mercy um, that, that we associate with them. Terrific, thank you Nandini. It's so interesting to look at her in this transnational dimension and, and think about uh, these parallels. Um, but you, you brought us up to speed as well with the contemporary moment when we are thinking very much about healing. And I wonder if in, you know, we've a few minutes left, I could just open up the discussion to all of you to think about uh, Bridget's function, Bridget's potential uh, for relevance in what we're living through. I mean, Rita, if I could come back to you, I hope we've got sound back for you, Rita. Um, but uh, I, I know that you started working more intensively around and through the idea of the Bridget figure. Is there more to do here? Is there further to go? Is there a, a political incentive that you would like to track in the visual use of Bridget? Do we still have Rita with us? Absolutely. I am. Can you hear me all right? I can. Yes, there you are. Yeah, no, no. I think I think the next 10 years, the next 10, 15 years is going to be incredibly important on this island, because I think, you know, without um, being any sort of a political expert, I, I can see clearly that we are probably going to wake up some morning and be all one island. And I think we better get having those discussions and preparing for that um, in a respectful and civilized way, because there's already been far too much kind of blood sacrifice, um, way, way, way too much blood sacrifice of the last hundred or few hundred years even. So I think that figure of Bridget and that feminine energy and that female way of solving problems and creating fogs in battle and giving men dreams of victory rather than actual victories is a really kind of, um, it points us in a direction that's very clever and less wasteful and less, less painful. Um, so yes, I would see that cloak of Bridget being a very important symbol to, um, to bring us forward um, and, and maybe into a, a much more um, cohabiting, intelligent future. And, but, but of course, now that Catherine has opened up these various other identities and sources about Bridget, we've also got a figure we can look to in terms of law, the language of law, uh, the structures of law, the structures of property, the structures of, of independent ownership. Other things I'm wondering, um, Catherine, if I could maybe come back to you, that you would like to see retrieved from the various sources that you, you've tracked on Bridget and brought back into the way we talk about her in the contemporary uh, and, and, and to make her more useful as a figure in contemporary politics, perhaps. I'm thinking particularly about the, the legal aspect that you were, um, you tracked so brilliantly for us. Uh, well, I was going to say that I'd uh, look more from Mary Condren's um, uh, contribution, say the fact that um, St. Bridget was um, ordained a bishop in one version of the story, uh, could uh, give somebody an example for the future. And uh, another thing she is uh, reputed to have done is to have um, 
when a, a nun um, lapsed and became pregnant uh, and came to St. Bridget uh, in anxiety, she blessed her, forgave her, and the nun had a miscarriage. So uh, the whole um, abortion and the freedom of choice thing and so on is also uh, relatable to St. Bridget. But I, I think uh, the idea that she's an authority figure and, and uh, 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 a fount of intelligence and art, whether you think of her as uh, 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 Christian or pagan, um, is uh, of interest. And indeed, and of course, even in just that note of uh, potential scandal there, Catherine, you've reminded us, I think, of something that's fundamental. She's a dangerous figure in whatever way you look at her and whatever sources you draw on. She's not a safe, fanatized saint for us. She's certainly someone who has the potential for disturbance and disruption of, uh, of ideas. And Mary, I know that, you know, because you, you've used her as a source for the festivals that you've run, you presumably are very open to that side of her as uh, a disruptive identity, a disruptive figure. Um, yes and, and no. One of the things I've had to learn, and I, I learned this as a theologian, is that when we talk about a goddess, we cannot talk about it in the Indo-European sense. So when mm. I talk about a goddess, I talk about panentheism, which is energy, henotheism, which is related to place, polytheism, which is like the Ulster goddesses, and then monotheism, which all the men have everything to themselves. So I think in our work, we have to distinguish between those four levels. And we also have to distinguish between what Michel Foucault calls the, the epistemic shifts. So that when, we, when Bridget has been committed to writing, um, all we're left with are the trace hauntings of the possibility that there was a lineage of female authority um, and that Bridget was not just one person. Bridget was a lineage of female authority that took very many different forms. And Andini mentioned the matriarchal studies. Matriarchy, of course, means women in the beginning. It does not mean women on top. And that's a huge, um, again, a huge issue that we need to bring into the discourse. Um, but my um, interest in Bridget, Adrian Rich, as you know, called for the dream of a common language. And I think that, you know, that dream of a common language can be realized in, initially, at least primarily through symbolism and art and poetry, and particularly through the, the common artifacts that um, Nandini has mentioned that are common throughout the world and that, you know, in common with my international colleagues, um, we try to recuperate and bring back to consciousness um, as, as, as a way of reinstating what Brackel, Lichtenberg, Ettinger calls a matrixial worldview. So, um, yeah, she, she is dangerous in the sense that she, the abysses of Kildare were responsible for turning back the streams of war. I only found that initially in a tiny little footnote when I was reading in the Widener Library in Harvard and I, I shivered all over, turning back the streams of war. That was their job. And that's probably why they, why the two of the abbesses were raped in the, in the 11th and 12th century and why any possibility of female officiation was taken from them with the rise of exclusive male separatist elitist um, priesthood, which um, centered around the sacraments and the control of grace rather than the, the promotion of the life force. You know, grace becomes the life force in that worldview, but the, the real life force comes from the nyart. And Bridget's um, feast day is to, uh, you know, awaken the nyart for all of us um, now and in the future. Well, Mary, that, that phrase, turning back the streams of war, is, is going to stay with me for the rest of Bridget's day today. And, and uh, thank you for bringing the, the creativity and all that dynamic history that lies behind Bridget uh, to, uh, to us today. And we've got, I know people listening will have questions, will have points. This is such a rich topic for further discussion. Uh, and I'm sorry we've only had an hour, but I hope we can perhaps revisit uh, the subject of Bridget when Rita's installation finally comes, as it will do, Rita to the front railings of Trinity and we have the cure at Trinity uh, after we've had uh, the cure for Ireland and the, the pandemic. Uh, but we must draw to a close. I want to, to thank uh, the, uh, the team as always at the Trinity Long Room Hub, particularly Francesca and Aoife for helping put the conversation together uh, and to thank our wonderful contributors, uh, Rita Duffy, Catherine Sims, Mary Condren and Nandini 
Gupta. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, we will make sure that you have Rita's artwork available on the Trinity Longroom Hub website so you can look at it at your leisure. Uh, I know you'll enjoy it and warm to it. Thank you everyone who's joined us this lunchtime to think about Bridget and uh, I wish you a very happy and renewed spring season. Thank you everyone and goodbye. If you don't mind, I just wanted to uh, say a small quote that I had, if if time permits. Please, Nandini, do. Yeah, just because um, Mary said about the patriarchal studies, I just wanted to relate it with what I said with Saraswati and all the female leaders around the world. It's by Anand Karnush, who has written a wonderful book called A Thousand Seeds of Joy, Teaching of Lakshmi and Saraswati. And it says, a matriarchal world does not mean matrilineal or that one where queen shall rule the world. It simply means a world in which a mother heals all the social institutions, corporations, and government. All human men, women, transgender can embody a woman, a mother's heart if they choose so. We're destined for the extension of the human race until a woman's heart assumes leadership of the world. So just a small close and a tribute to Bridget and all the female deities around the world. Thanks. Terrific. Thank you so much, Nandini. A perfect note to end on. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. Goodbye. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.